So this story is called Peter's Parrot. It's a contemporary story. I don't know who wrote it, and it doesn't particularly belong to any of the religious traditions. Peter really wanted a pet, so he went to the pet shop to have a look round, and his eye was immediately caught by a beautiful parrot. I really like the look of that parrot, he said to the pet shop owner. Can it talk? It's a brilliant talker, said the shopkeeper. It has a vocabulary of a hundred words, it will amaze all your friends, and it will keep you entertained for hours. How much is it? asked Peter. Fifty euros, and cheap at the price. Would you like a cage too? Uh, certainly, replied Peter. How much? Twenty euros. What about a perch? How much? Twenty euros. Peter paid the 90 euros and took the parrot, the cage and the perch home. He was very much looking forward to hearing the parrot talk. But it didn't. For 24 hours it sat on its perch in the cage, but apart from the occasional squawk, no sound issued from its beak. The next day, Peter returned to the shop. Excuse me, he said to the shopkeeper. I bought a parrot here yesterday, and you told me it was a brilliant talker. But it hasn't said a word yet. How strange, said the shopkeeper. You mean to say that he swung on his little swing and never spoke one word? Er, uh, you never mentioned anything about a swing. Every parrot needs a little swing. A parrot won't talk unless it has a swing. How much? said Peter. Twenty euros. Peter bought the swing, fixed it in the cage, and the parrot swung merrily all day. But it didn't talk. Peter went back to the shop. Uh, excuse me, he said to the shopkeeper. I bought a parrot here two days ago. You told me it could talk really well, but it still hasn't said a word. Oh dear, said the shopkeeper. You mean that it's been swinging on its little swing and climbing its little ladder and it still hasn't spoken? Uh, wait a minute, said Peter. You never said anything about a little ladder. A parrot needs a ladder. Everyone knows that. A parrot won't talk unless it has a ladder to climb. How much is a ladder? 20 euros. Peter bought the ladder and put it in the parrot's cage. The parrot swung on its swing and climbed its ladder. But it still didn't talk. Peter returned to the shop. Excuse me, he said. Three days ago I bought a parrot. You said that it could talk very well, but it still hasn't said a word. Goodness, said the man. You mean to say that it swung on its little swing, climbed its little ladder, rung its little bell, and it still hasn't spoken? You never mentioned a little bell. Everyone knows a parrot won't talk unless it has a little bell to ring. How much? 20 euros. Peter bought the bell, 
took it home and fixed it in the cage. The parrot merrily swung on its swing, climbed its ladder and rang its bell. But it didn't talk. In fact, it died. It fell off its perch and landed on the cage floor. It was stone dead. Peter went back to the shop. Excuse me, he said. Four days ago, I bought a parrot which you said could talk very well. I've also bought a cage, a perch, a swing, a ladder and a bell. I spent 150 euros in your shop and this morning the parrot dropped down dead. I'm sorry to hear that. Did he speak before he died? Yes, he did, as it happens. His final and only words were, didn't that stupid money-grabbing shopkeeper say anything about some bird seed? And that's the story of Peter's parrot. I've called this talk, Roads for Travelling Souls. And I want to start with a quotation from Walt Whitman. To see the universe as a road, as many roads, as roads for travelling souls. I chose the story Peter's Parrot to open our session today because it makes a very important point. There are fundamental issues which need to be addressed before we move on to a consideration of secondary matters. And for us human beings, there are no more fundamental questions than those four in the morning questions of identity and purpose, which seem to demand our attention from our earliest days and never leave us. Questions like, what am I doing here? Why am I alive? What's the point of my existence? Who am I? What is the meaning of my life? Such matters precede any questions of lifestyle, sexual orientation, status, belief systems and behavioural attitudes. Explorer and philosopher Lawrence van der Post puts it like this. The Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert talk about the two hungers. There is the great hunger and there is the little hunger. The little hunger wants food for the belly, but the great hunger, the greatest hunger of all, is the hunger for meaning. There is ultimately only one thing that makes human beings deeply and profoundly bitter and that is to have thrust upon them a life without meaning. There is nothing wrong in searching for happiness, but a far more comfort to the soul is something greater than happiness or unhappiness, and that is meaning. Because meaning transfigures all. Once what you are doing has for you meaning, it is irrelevant whether you are happy or unhappy. You are content. You are not alone in your spirit. You belong. Concentration camp survivor and psychiatrist Viktor Frankl would agree. 
In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he tells us, quoting Dostoevsky, that a person who knows the why of his or her existence will be able to bear almost any how. So, why are you alive? One common way of approaching the question about life's significance is to deny that it has one. At its most extreme, this attitude can manifest as nihilism, belief in nothing. And one of the most succinct and yet most chilling expressions of this point of view that I've ever read comes from Samuel Beckett's Uncle Gerard, who used to describe life rather morbidly as a disease of matter. Not much room there for elevated concepts of purpose. And Beckett himself seems to have had the same bleak opinion. Vladimir, in Waiting for Godot, says of human life, One day we are born, one day we'll die. A stride of the grave and a difficult birth. The gravedigger puts on the forceps. The light flickers for an instant. It is night once more. For Vladimir, as for Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. At least, signifying nothing ultimately. This seems to be the attitude of some very influential modern thinkers. Here's a few of their pronouncements which I've collected over the last decade or so. This is from science writer Marcus Chown, writing in The Guardian. A total eclipse confronts us with a truth we would rather not face. The truth is we live on a tiny clod of cold clay in an insignificant corner of an infinite universe. In the great scheme of things, our lives are of no importance whatsoever. And the ecologist and journalist George Monbiot, also a Guardian writer. Darwinian evolution tells us, he writes, that we are incipient compost, assemblages of complex molecules that for no greater purpose than to secure sources of energy against competing claims have developed the ability to speculate. After a few score years, the molecules disaggregate and return whence they came. As a gardener and an ecologist, I find this oddly comforting, writes George. The geneticist Dean Hamer wrote, We follow the basic law of nature which is that we're a bunch of chemical reactions running around in a bag. Or, as some other anonymous writer put it, even more succinctly, we are just hairy bags of chemicals. The cognitive psychologist and philosopher Daniel Dennett wrote, 
You are a trillion mindless robots dancing. Unless you think this is a completely male point of view, and I might say it is generally a male point of view, the psychologist Susan Blackmore, she wrote, everything we do is merely the result of memes competing in a pointless universe. Some influential politicians would agree. Trotsky said, we must rid ourselves once and for all of the Quaker papist babble about the sanctity of human life. And Stalin is quoted as saying, one death may be a tragedy, but a million deaths is just a statistic. Coupled with this philosophical nihilism is the pervasive belief that we human beings are the product of our genes and our environment, and that by controlling both these factors, we will be able to produce a superior species, a happy and well-behaved humanity. We talk about the accident of birth, the assumption that the circumstances of my life are entirely dependent upon fortuitous factors. At the beginning of his famous novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut's narrator tells us that just after the Second World War, he studied anthropology at the University of Chicago, where he was taught that, quote, there was absolutely no difference between anybody. They may be teaching that still, he says. Whether the University of Chicago or any other academic institution is still teaching that precise doctrine in the 21st century, I'm in no position to judge, but I think I can confidently state that it was an extremely popular opinion throughout the second half of the 20th century, both inside and outside the walls of academia. This was the age of behaviorist psychology of experiments with rats in cages and mice in mazes. Its high priests were Pavlov and Skinner, and its mantra was operant conditioning. It saw the human being as a tabula rasa, a blank slate on which were inscribed the myriad marks of his or her environmental conditioning. For the behaviourist, character is formed by circumstances, and the natural corollary of this is that if we can positively influence the circumstances under which people are brought up, we can mould and form their character in positive ways. Skinner himself wrote a novel called Walden II about a community of the future in which crime and antisocial behaviour have been eliminated by careful manipulation of the early learning environment. In contrast, the spiritual tradition, the spiritual traditions tell us without exception that we come into the world as unique individuals, not as blank canvases. Within the Eastern traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism, this is expressed in the doctrine of karma, 
which holds that we are not random and interchangeable entities, but eternal souls, each with a specific and unique destiny. Within the Judeo-Christian tradition, a similar idea is expressed in the notion of our individual creation by God, beautifully articulated by Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Woven together is a translation of the Hebrew word rakam, which means to embroider. The idea is that each one of us has been embroidered by God, knitted with intricacy to give us an individual uniqueness. We are curious and unlikely creatures, writes Annie Dillard. Things are wilder by far than we think, and more wondrous than we may yet have dared to believe. The Bible does not only tell us that we are special, it tells us that we are different. One of the dominant themes of the Bible concerns the 12 tribes of Israel which scholars and preachers down the centuries have tended to view rather prosaically in geographical or cultural terms. Historians tell us that ten of these tribes got lost somewhere millennia ago, but esoteric thinkers have viewed these twelve tribes as psychological types, as spiritual types, all twelve of which are still among us, and still discernible. This was a conclusion reached, no doubt, after millennia of observation. We tend to forget that humanity was already very old when these ancient texts were written, and that astute and observant people had had plenty of time to discern the varieties of human beings. We, who have a post-enlightenment cultural prejudice against such an idea, will probably object to it on the grounds that you cannot divide the human race into 12 groups. We're all individuals and each of us is unique. But despite such rhetoric, there is little or no belief in individuality in our age. We start from the unexpressed premise that everybody is much the same as everybody else, and any differences there may be can be overcome by changing the environmental circumstances or by an act of will. The Unitarian poet E. E. Cummings said, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else, 
means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. To say instead, as the ancients did, that there are 12 distinct categories of human being and that within each category an infinite number of possible variations is to hold a view that is immeasurably more humane and truer to experience than the dreadful homogenizing forces of contemporary Western society, which frowns upon individuality and which holds that any differences that may exist are merely cosmetic. That there are 12 basic types of human being is obvious to anyone who will take the trouble to do a bit of people watching. Let me give you a few examples. In the summer of 2006, Radio 4 ran a competition to discover Britain's favourite philosopher. Top of the poll was Karl Marx. The runner-up was 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume. And third was Ludwig Wittgenstein. Immanuel Kant was sixth. All these were born under the zodiac sign of Taurus. Four out of ten born either in late April or early May. Quite a remarkable statistic. But it becomes even more remarkable. We don't know the birthday of St Thomas Aquinas, who also features on the list. But since he was called the dumb ox by his peers at university, we can legitimately assume that he was born under Taurus too. Both Socrates and Plato are reputed to have been born around the 19th or 20th of May, again indicating Taurus. So seven out of ten favourite philosophers are either certainly or probably Taurians. The birthdays of the great satirists seem to cluster around late November and early December, the zodiac sign of Sagittarius. Voltaire, whose Candide is one of the most savage satires on religion ever written, was born on the 21st of November. Jonathan Swift and Mark Twain were both born on the 30th of November, and Samuel Butler on the 4th of December. In modern times, the American comic and satirist Bill Hicks was born on the 16th of December, and John Stewart, who used to host the American satirical programme The Daily Show, was born on the 28th of November. Sarah Silverman was born on December the 1st. Let me ask you, what do these four men have in common? Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. These are often called the four horsemen of the new atheism, and you can see lots of pictures of them sitting together around a table, looking very grim, as well they might. They were all born, all four of these, under the zodiac sign of Aries. This little piece appeared in The Guardian on the 13th of August 2012. Planning on having a baby? Want them to run a little like Mo Farah, cycle like Sir Chris Hoy, or row like Sir Steve Redgrave? You could do worse than ring the 23rd of March on your calendar and plan your efforts accordingly. 
For what these men have in common, apart from Olympic gold medals of plenty, is their date of birth. Although separated in age by decades, a cluster of male British sporting greats was born on the same date in spring. From Redgrave, rowing's most decorated Olympian, gold medals five, in 1962, to track cyclist Jason Kenney, gold medals three, in 1968. In between came Hoy, gold medals six, in 1976, and Farah, gold medals as of Saturday night, two. He was born in 1983. Add into the mix the four-minute mile runner Roger Bannister, born in 1929, Joe Calzaghe, the Pride of Wales boxing, boxing champion, born 1972, and former England cricket captain Mike Atherton, 1968. And you have what appears to be a birthday of rare potential. It will come as no surprise to students of astrology that champion athletes and militant atheists should be born at the beginning of spring under the sign of Aries. Aries, writes Charles Carter, is characterised by extreme activity, especially physical. There is unlimited energy, daring, love of enterprise and adventure, and a quick, decided temper that ill brooks any opposition or restraint. Of course, there's nothing in it. It's just coincidence. As we all know, astrology is foolishness. The fact that Galileo, Kepler and Newton all practised it. And I, shall I say that again? The fact that Galileo, Kepler and Newton all practised it. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Dante, Henry Miller, Louis MacNeese and Ted Hughes believed in it. All those things mean nothing. We'd much rather take the word of such contemporary luminaries as Richard Dawkins and Dara O'Brien, who have probably never read a word of serious astrology in their whole life. In fact, I know for certainty that neither has ever read anything. They've simply taken it on trust that astrology is bunkum. I am a Gemini, born on the 10th of June, married to a Gemini, also born on the 10th of June. My mother was born on the 10th of June. My life has expressed the Geminian theme of duality in almost textbook fashion. For much of my adult life, I've lived in two places, England and Ireland, and I've followed two careers, teaching and preaching. Although Morag and I share a birthday, we are very different people. We have things in common because we belong to the same tribe, but we still have countless distinguishing characteristics which ensure genuine individuality. Ralph Waldo Emerson, another Gemini and a Unitarian, wrote in his essay, The Essential Principles of Religion, nature, when she sends a new mind into the world, fills it beforehand with that she wishes it to know and do. The charm of life is this variety of genius, 
these contrasts and flavors by which heaven has modulated the identity of truth. And there is a perpetual hankering among people to violate this individuality, to warp a child's way of thinking and behavior. And I suffer whenever I see that common sight of a parent or senior imposing his opinion and way of thinking and being on a young soul to which it is totally unfit. Bronson Olcott, the father of Louisa M. Olcott, author of Little Women, was an educator and visionary, a contemporary of Emerson and Walt Whitman, who entertained ideas like those I've been expounding. In 1835, just before the birth of his third daughter, whom he was to call Elizabeth, he wrote in his journal about his excitement at the imminent appearance of, quote, the young celestial whom I am soon to know. Two weeks ago, a Facebook friend, Dublin astrologer Andrew Smith, who has recently become a grandfather, wrote, Karen and I couldn't be prouder of our daughter, Sarah Ellen, and her partner, Christian, on the birth of their son, Theo, on Monday at 5.02pm. Theo, welcome to our clan, and welcome back to this earthy plane. You have amazing parents that you will educate and guide, and we look forward to so many profound moments with you. Thank you for choosing us as your companions and co-guardians. We are honoured to be part of your life. Both Bronson Olcott and Andrew Smith assume that the newborn child has chosen to be born into a particular family and into a particular set of circumstances. This idea goes back at least to Plato, who at the end of the Republic tells the story of Air, which describes how an incarnating soul chooses its next life. Wordsworth, in Intimations of Immortality, says much the same thing. He writes, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. The esoteric traditions, reflecting both Plato and Wordsworth, tell us that our birth is not accidental, that we are born when we are born, because that is when we need to be born, when we have chosen to be born. I was born on the 10th of June, 1945, at three minutes past 11, Greenwich Mean Time, in Leeds, because my soul needs a Gemini experience in this incarnation. To see things this way is to run completely counter to prevailing intellectual opinion, which is depressingly nihilistic. 
and it opens out to us a profoundly challenging and liberating perspective on things. The world ceases to be a place into which we have randomly fallen and becomes instead, in the words of Keats, a veil of soul-making. With Walt Whitman we can see the universe as a road, as many roads, as roads for travelling souls. Isn't that a beautiful image? You are not, as Daniel Dennett would hold, a trillion mindless robots dancing. You are not incipient compost. You are not a hairy bag of chemicals. You are a child of God, a travelling soul. And the tribes of Israel have not disappeared into Assyria or into Europe. They are here, travelling with you, side by side, down twelve well-worn paths. We should live, as Nietzsche says, loving our fate, because in some sense we have chosen it, and we should die with the realisation that some time after death we are going to have to choose again.